Hey, it's that time again for everybody to wake up. I know you hit your snooze alarm three times this morning and you're groggy on your way to work. You're already running late, but you're listening to The Conversation. And this episode of The Conversation is brought to you who by Tony? This is uh, brought to you by Anderson's Heat and Air of Northeast Arkansas, Brian. This is a great company. You know what? It was hot outside today, Brian. But you know what? It don't have to be hot inside today. Anderson's Heat and Air of Northeast Arkansas is here to serve you anywhere from new constructions to installations to repairs to maintenance. Brian, there ain't no sense in being hot inside and outside. Call Nat Anderson today, and his phone number is 870-926-8700. That's 870-926-8700. And tell Mr. Anderson that the conversation sent you. Hey, you know what they say, Tony, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And you know you it's a weeknight, you've been working all day, especially if it's Monday when you're listening in, the last place you want to be a slaving over that stove. Call 1-870-931-4700 and get yourself down to 2230 South Caraway Road in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Missouri's Italian Oven is a proud sponsor of the podcast, and they have some of the most fantastic Italian food you can get a hold of. You know you're going to want to see them, your baby, your toddler, with that spaghetti sauce all over their face. You're going to take a nice picture. It's going to make some memories tonight at Lazari Italian Oven, whether you dine in or it's to go. If you're dining in, go ahead and get your dessert. I know you're thinking you're trying to lose weight and stuff. You already had three loaves of bread though what why not three pieces of cheesecake go ahead and let them know the conversation sent you this podcast is also brought to you by a couple of people we like to call friends on the conversation that's mike and lisa barber these folks are licensed realtors at jonesboro realty company and it don't matter if you're looking to buy don't matter if you're looking to sell hey you may just be wanting to rent for a little while Mike and Lisa Barber can help you do that. doesn't matter what your needs are. Brian, you know why I like them? Why is that? Because you get two realtors working on your behalf for the price of one. Man, that's a buy one, get one free deal. Yeah, it is. You don't get deals like that except around 4th of July on firecrackers. That's right. But here's the thing. you got to call them right now at 870-761-1000. It's the first step. There's no harm in looking around, seeing what's out there. Guys, don't be stuck in something you don't like. Call 870-761-1000. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what's that sound? Do you what, hear that? What are you talking about? Shh, shh, shh. Listen. Do, do you hear it? I don't, I, I, I don't want to hear nothing. Oh, I know what that sound is, pastors. That's the sound of your parking lot crying out for help. You've got six potholes out in the back. Your guests are about to trip in those potholes. you got some standing water every time it rains, and we've got the perfect solution for you. Craig O'Brien is here in northeast Arkansas. He's not just willing to stay in northeast Arkansas, but he will come and fix any parking lot you have, whether it be a church, a business, a nonprofit. But, Tony, why don't you tell me a little more about it? All right, like you said, Brian, this podcast is brought to you by Seal It Up Company Incorporated. This is locally owned and operated by Craig O'Brien. This company takes care of parking lot maintenance such as asphalt, seal coating, line striping, pothole removals, pothole fill-ins. It don't matter. They take care of it all. You know what? Driveways, parking lots, church parking, painting. It doesn't matter. You know what sets them apart, Brian? You know what sets them apart? Uh, Tell me about it. They give back. It don't matter if you're a church or a nonprofit organization. They deal with it. They take care of it. They give back. You know what? Just give them a call. 870-897-4787. Guys, get that curb appeal back. Get that, get that number one more time. It's 
897-4787. Get rid of them potholes like it's a bad day. This week, Brian and I is very pleased to present to you a conversation with Pastor Tony McCall of Lake City, Arkansas. In this conversation, we sit down and we touch on some very sincere um, personal topics, Brian. We asked Brother McCall one of the biggest questions that anyone can ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Listen in. That's why it rains on the just and the unjust alike. That's why good times happen and bad times happen to the good and the bad alike. That's why time and chance and circumstance occurs to every person. Because God doesn't operate on a merit-based system of the good get the good and the bad get the bad. God operates on a system where, where the grace and the mercy of God is available to whosoever will. I can have his grace. I can have his mercy. I can know his love because bad things happen to good people. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. I've got to be careful tonight um, because I'm sitting here with two Tonys, and so I have to be very careful which Tony I am addressing. Um, tonight we have Pastor Tony McCall from Lake City, Arkansas, uh, joining us tonight. Thank you, Brother McCall, for uh, spending the time with us here on a yeah, Saturday evening. Uh, Brian, I can tell you before we move on, you're going to have a real distinct different answers when you talk to this Tony than that Tony. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, guys, I want to tell you it's a real honor and pleasure to be here, and uh, I've been looking forward to it. We've been talking about it for a little while, and uh, finally got all of our schedules together on the same night, and here we are, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, let me tell you something I'm looking forward to is Tony McCall is a big Cardinals fan. Yes. And I'm a big Cubs fan. And uh, we just got done with a – well, you guys just got done with getting swept you know, back-to-back You know, I, back I thought this was going to be a spiritual discussion. <laughs> All right, we'll move on from that. Oh, well. Man, every right. now and then, you got to be a little carnal, though. I'm telling you. Woo pig suey. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, though, if the Cubs lost two series in a row, we'd be hearing about it on this podcast right now. I don't know about that. You don't get it from me very often. Oh, I get it all the time from everybody. But you I get s- it from everybody. You listen, though, Tony, you ask for it. I do. Of course This I is do. the truth. This is it. <laughs> you know what the easiest way not to have to worry about it either way is? Just don't be a fan of any of them. <laughs> oh, but that's boring. Because here's the thing about being a fan. You live and die with your team. And when your team's having a bad year or, you know, a bad decade – you live and die, or a bad century. You live and die with your team. I mean, you know, it's my team, and yeah. it'll always be my team. And oh, so, man. Oh, I, I will. I've, I've died year after year after year after year after year with them. So. Well, I've been learning lately what it, what, is, what it was like to be a Cubs fan. You know, wait till next year. Well, next year's going to be better. And uh, next year has so far been letting me down. So <laughs> I'm now looking forward to next year. Well, like Brian said, Brother McCall is very – humbling to be able to sit here with you today um you are a man that has a wealth of knowledge and we'll eventually get into that but before we do get into that tell us a little bit about who you are 
Well, my name is Tony McCall. I pastor the Pentecostals of Lake City. Um, I've been in church my whole life. I was born, uh, I guess, wasn't born in church, but I was probably in church the first Sunday of my life. My parents got in church uh, before I was born in West Helena, Arkansas, under Spencer McCool. I was dedicated by Spencer. My family moved to Blyville, which was my dad's hometown, whenever I was uh, preschool age. I moved in into that church in Blyville. Brother Lyles was the pastor. I really don't remember him very well, very vague memories. Then Brother Sam Frank was my pastor. Then Brother Steve Spears was my pastor. I remember your wife as a very small child. And then in 1992, I graduated high school and moved off to college. And uh, God called me to preach, and I became connected with Brother David Harris's church in Bono, Arkansas, which is where my wife had attended her whole life. And uh, we, we, I started, became active in ministry there and stayed there for 16, 17 years before we became pastor here in Lake City and moved here. Uh, let me ask you, whenever you just said that you had got called into the ministry, um, what was that calling like? When did you know that it was, it was a call to preach? You know, my whole life, I've always been that kind of outgoing, talkative, and um, didn't have trouble expressing myself. I was most comfortable around strangers. You know, I, I could just talk to anybody. And all my life, school teachers, Sunday school teachers, everybody said, you're going to be a preacher. You know, you're going to be a preacher. You're a politician or a preacher. And if I want to be one of those, I was going to be a preacher. I knew, I pretty well knew from a very young age that was, you know, I kind of wanted to do that. But I was, in my high school years, I began to drift a little bit in my faith. And I began to uh, turn my back on some things and, and begin to walk ways that I, I knew weren't right and get involved in things that I should have been involved in. And as I was drifting in those years, I met my wife and we started dating and we went together. I don't know why she dated me because I was, that's a whole nother story for another day. I was doing my best to act like I was in church, but I was, you know, doing, dabbling in this and that and the other. And we went down to senior camp that was 1992, I believe. And at senior camp, uh, Brother Mooney was preaching. He preached a message, Dream on Dreamer. And God got a hold of my heart. I came to the altar that night and without a doubt, with uh, absolutely no reservation, God called me to preach. I knew when I got up from that altar, he gave me a vision. I, I knew when I got up from that altar that I had been called to preach. And what had been a childhood dream, what had been something that I had kind of thought about doing and then had really turned my back on. I had, my father was a minister and uh, my mom and dad had, had gotten hurt at different points and I'd really decided I just didn't want to have anything to do with that. That really wasn't what I wanted to be. And uh, I got up from that altar and I knew God had called me to preach. Did you ever struggle with that? I uh, struggled with going back and convincing others that what I felt was real. Yeah, you know? because I'm sure there's been people in your life that saw you struggle, and whenever you go back and say, hey, I'm changed, I feel like I've been called into ministry, it's almost like you're, it's almost embarrassing to tell people, you know, this is the, the direction I feel I'm supposed to go in my life. What made that transition easier for me was that I had, I moved. I had been in Blyville my whole life, and I had just moved to Jonesboro, 
and had kind of shopped around a little bit churches hadn't really settled yet and I, I was I landed at Bono about the time that this occurred and so I, I had a whole new environment people who didn't necessarily know my past I didn't have that constantly thrust in my face um, uh, they they loved me for who I was and and I had a clean slate and I brother uh, David Harris was my wife's uncle. He sat down with me and said, young man, I want, I want to use you in ministry. You need to go get a haircut. <laughs> and so that my first act as, as a uh, ministerial candidate was to go get a haircut. And, uh, and, and, and he started using me in youth ministry. So whenever you first got into the youth ministry, um, was that like a youth pastor role? Were you assisting on kind of like a team? How was that? At the time, Brother Dan Murphy was the youth pastor, Brother David Harris was a pastor, and I just started, we had a, a regular Saturday night youth service. We went to church on Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday nights. So we had three weekend services. And the Saturday night service um, was a very large service because people come in from other churches around that didn't have church on Saturday night. So we, we uh, I started preaching in that Saturday night youth service. Eventually, Brother David Harris would step down. Brother Dan Murphy would uh, step up into the role of pastor of that church, and my wife and I would step into the youth pastor role. And uh, we we carried on that Saturday night youth service for years and years. And there were a lot of times we had a larger crowd on Saturday night than we had on Sunday night, and we had some phenomenal church. And really, that's where I learned to preach was was in that pulpit on Saturday night youth service and preaching to a, a, a great crowd who got with me and and uh, I was I was considered long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've undone that or not. I've tried my best to be more disciplined, but I, man, when I get to going, I just get to going. So we'll we'll loop back around to your personal life here in a minute, but your ministry-wise, you were preaching on Saturday nights um, in Bono, and at what? At what time in your life did you know you were called to pastor a church? Because that's that's a big jump from being a Saturday night preacher to pastoring a church full time. Well, you know, that comes a whole lot later in the story because we were youth pastors. I went from being a youth pastor to being a, an assistant pastor to being an associate pastor. Was it all in Bono? All in Bono. We were in Bono for 16, 17 years. And so I went from being not being licensed with the UPC to being local licensed, to be general licensed, to being ordained. And so there was a lot of growth process. I, I went from thinking I was going to leave and go be an evangelist, or first thinking I was going to leave and go to Bible college, and, and then thinking I was going to leave and go be an evangelist, then thinking I was going to leave and go be a missionary, and, and just constantly trying to find God's purpose and will for my life and doing my best to serve the best I could where I was. The pastor thing was something I never, I never really expected. Um, was content to my wife and i were in the church that she grew up in it was a revival church it was a growing church we were building a new building we had just moved into a new building we 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 were set if you will if we'd stayed there i would i'm sure i would be uh, transitioning with brother murphy right now in that building and then there was never any doubt about that future and i was content and we were happy and we weren't looking for anything but we got a phone call. Actually, my pastor called me and said, uh, there's, there's a opportunity come up. I want you to go preach a church that needs a minister for a, a Sunday. It's just gonna be a one Sunday deal. Uh, we, when they scheduled this, we did, it was scheduled before 
Brother Anderson was the pastor here. His son was assisting or was pastoring at the time. Brother Anderson had moved into a senior pastor role and his son was pastoring. And he called and he said, I'm gonna need a couple of preachers these two Sundays. And Brother Murphy arranged for me to cover one of those Sundays. Well, in the interim, he resigned the church. And so we come to preach in Lake City the very first time on the first Sunday after the church had been resigned by the previous pastor. And we, we, we had absolutely uh, no intention to do anything but come in here and preach. And so we, it was not in this building, it was in a building across town. And uh, we walked in and my wife and I started, uh, we instantly fell in love with a small group of people that were there uh, and the building and the church and, and the history. And, and we, we kept telling each other, somebody ought to go help them folks. Somebody ought to go do something. Now here's Brother Anderson's life where we didn't know him well. We'd known him from a distance for years, but we weren't closely associated with him. But, but somebody ought to go and, and be a help. And somebody ought to go and, and pick that. You know, there's a church that, that really needs somebody. And uh, we never intended to be that somebody. <laughs> but it's a dangerous thing to start telling God what somebody should do. Because inevitably, God starts saying, you know, you may be that somebody. And so over the course of a couple of weeks, uh, I left. I, we preached here that Sunday. That Monday was Crusaders Camp. And I was a member of the Sunday School Committee. I was the promotions director under Brother Ray. And so I went to Crusaders Camp, took my boys with me. My wife was home alone. I was at the camp alone. And during that week, a couple of different things happened that God really spoke to my heart and uh, challenged me. And I come home knowing I needed to have a conversation with my wife that was going to be uncomfortable and uh, not knowing exactly how to do it. But when I came home that, that Friday, my wife, I went to her and I said, you know, we need to talk. She said, we do. I, I got something I need to talk to you about. And uh, she began to tell me how God had been dealing with her about this church in Lake City. And we realized we're feeling the same thing. We're on the same page. So then I thought, well, I need to, the next difficult conversation is I've got to have a conversation with my pastor. And you've got to understand, Brother Murphy is, he is a father figure in my life. I have a dad. I have a tremendous father who is who gets the credit for who I am in every way, shape, and form. Everything I do, everything I love, everything I'm good at, I learned from my dad. My dad was my favorite preacher. My dad taught me how to run a barbecue grill and a smoker. My dad taught me how to shoot traditional archery. My dad has been a role model for me my entire life. But during those 16, 17 years that we were assisting in, in Bono, we grew very close to the Murphys. But the Murphy has been a surrogate father for me in different ways. And, and especially in the ministry capacity and a spiritual capacity, uh, he often describes as he's, he's Paul to my Timothy or something of that nature. And so it was going to be a very difficult uh, phone call to make. My phone rang, and it was Brother Murphy. And he said, man, we need to talk about something. And uh, so I come down to the church and met him on a Saturday. And he told me the church in Lake City had called and asked about if I'd be willing to come back and try out for the church. And I thought in that instant, you know, here it is. You know, God's opened this. Uh, again, here we're on the same page. Uh, Brother Murphy had not yet 
come to that, he really thought it was something we wouldn't be interested in doing. And so I just waded right in. Yes, this is what I feel. This is what I feel like God's laid on my heart. And, and, and he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pray with you about that. And we did. And we did go back and try out. Um, they opened the church up for other tryouts. I don't know how many different individuals preached over the course of that time. And I kept saying, well, if this is God's will, then he's going to make a way. It doesn't matter. If it's not his will, we don't want it. We're, we're very comfortable where we are. We're not asking to move. But if this is God's will, we want to pursue it. And uh, it come down to the night of the vote. There were only a couple of names going to be on the ballot. Others had, had withdrawn their name. And we asked God, my wife and I together, and I, I'm... You know, I, people say what they want to say about fleecing the Lord and, and whether it's a lack of faith that does that. You, whatever, however you feel there, we, we asked God, said, if, if this is your will, we want 100% of the vote. Now, there's only 14 people, but we want 100% of the vote. And the night of the vote, uh, I think that if I remember right, everybody whose name was on the ballot besides ours withdrew their name. And, and you still aren't guaranteed 100% of the vote, but we did get 100% of the vote. And we felt like that was confirmation to us that, that God wanted us to come to Lake City. Now, I sat down with my family. My boys were small. We were in a large church, a revival church, had a youth group, had, they had friends, and, and we're gonna move them to a church in a, in a small community that's a small church where they're gonna be the Sunday school department. I mean, my wife is going to take my boys, and they're going to be Sunday school. That's going to be all there is. And so I realized that their future was intertwined with this call of God. And so we, we had a family meeting. We sat down, and we said, look, I told the boys, you get a vote in this. Everybody gets a vote in this. We're not going unless it's unanimous. And we talked it out, and our boys said, Dad, we're with you. We want to do this. We want to go. And so we, the hardest sermon I ever preached in my life was the last sermon I preached in Bono. And trying to reconcile where we had been, what we had invested in, with where we were going. And knowing that God has a plan and a purpose that is bigger than what I can understand. It's bigger than what I can see. It's bigger than my imagination. And if I just trust the process... The process always brings me to his perfect will. And so we, we with, I described it this way to friends and family with a faith that was greater than our fear because we were scared to death. We stepped out on faith and here we are. And God's blessed. He's opened doors. We've moved into this new building or new to us building. And uh, we're walking in the provision and the blessing of the Lord. And, and I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know that I am in his perfect will right now i appreciate that as being a pastor i know you have a forward thinking vision and obviously since you come here there's been progress has been made you've moved buildings but i appreciate that whenever i when we walked into the church i noticed there was a wall that had pictures up of the previous pastor and how you haven't forgotten that past right because i feel like you know we can it's not an overwhelming majority of people but there's a lot of churches that have been out there that they'll get a new pastor and they forget about all the heritage they had or the pastor will, will fundamentally change who the church is we, we we know churches even in our area there have been churches that as transition came 
the, the past went out with it. But you've held on to that heritage here. Um, and I know uh, Pastor Anderson passed away not too long ago. What was Brother Anderson, because of course when you first came you didn't really know him. Over time, as, as he was a member here in the church as, under your pastorate, what was his relationship like with you? Well, you know, when we when we started discussing coming, we we went actually sat down and had dinner with them a couple of times before the church had their business meeting. And in the first of those meetings, Brother Anderson sat down with me, and he had a really uh, severe look about him. He you could tell something was heavily on his mind. And he began to tell my wife and I how that if if we came to Lake City, that uh, he and his wife would would move away. Would, would leave the building, the church to us, and, and they wouldn't, didn't want to be a drag on us, and whatever all. And, and we, we had already unanimously, my wife and I, we'd already together, unanimous isn't the right word, but in unity, we had already come together and said, you know, we, we want to honor these folks. We want to, we're coming here because we're going to build on the vision he has. We're going to build on the foundation, and we don't want to see his work die. And the last thing we wanted to do was say, you need to leave for us to do that. And so we told him, I said, Brother Anderson, we'd, we'd love for you to stay here. We want you to be a part of this church from the, from day one. If, if we're the pastor from day one, you're the founding pastor. Now you're not, it wasn't a senior pastor, junior pastor kind of role. I'm, I'm the pastor, but you are the founding pastor. We will honor you in every way possible. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to build on that legacy that you have. We're going to, we're going to show you the, because one of these days I'm going to be in that position and, and I wanted to treat him the way that, that I would want to be treated in that position. As a matter of fact, at that time, I was reading a book by Mark Jordan, and he wrote several books on leadership. I don't even remember the exact name of the book, but they all have a similar title or similar cover. Uh, leading and leading, living and leading. Living and leading, leading I think was, yeah. yeah. Jordan. Yeah, that's the mm -hmm. one. And he talks in that book about transitions. And it just so happened that I was in this place and I actually kind of crafted some of my thinking in that, in that reading. And, and I, he talked about giving honor and showing honor because you're going to be in that position. So that's what we did. We brought Brother Anderson in, said, you know, you're going to be the founding pastor. We're going to honor you. And so he returned. This is the way he returned that. Our first week there. Uh, I believe our first service was on a Wednesday night, and, and it may have been the second Wednesday night, but it was right in that first week that we were there. It may have been that Sunday night. We got to church. I had an office. He had an office. I went to my office and sat down to prepare for my, my sermon, uh, getting the service together and all that. And a little commotion happened out in the hall in front of my office, and I could hear this couple come in, and they were having a, a pretty heated discussion between themselves. They were having some problems, and they marched into Brother Anderson's office, and the door slammed. And, and uh, I, I'm, I know from what he told me later, you know, they come in, they announce they need him to, to counsel with them, they're having trouble, you know, this whatever's going on. And he got up, and he took them by the one hand, by either, you know, either one by the hand, and took them out the office door, marched them into my office, and he said, that man sitting behind that desk, he's your pastor. You talk to him, and walked out. And that's the way it was from day one, and that's the way it was until the day he passed away. He was our biggest fan. He was our greatest supporter. He, he was behind us 100%. 
He, as far as I know, never, ever said a negative word about us, never undercut our ministry, never. Uh, I'm sure there were things we did that he didn't agree with 100%. I'm sure there were times that his vision and my vision weren't exactly in sync, but I never one time heard from him any type of, all I ever heard from him was, you do it and I'll be with you. You go and I'm behind you. We, we believe in you. We're so thankful that you're here. We're so thankful that you're doing this. And, and I, I, a lot of people, I, when his funeral, they kept saying, you know, this transition thing and how, uh, how, how remarkable it was. And I kept telling people, this is the way I feel very strongly. Whatever credit there is for the transition that happened in between Bishop Anderson and myself belongs to him. I was the young guy who didn't know what he was doing. I was the young guy who was learning by uh, as you go you know and you're going to make mistakes learning as you go he was the elder minister who had been here 38 years before i came this was his life and he was willing to let go and let us and and support us and back us and all the credit for that transition goes to him i, I teach a, a principle at our church i try to build on that i call forward facing faith and, and in, in my mind, it's a concept that says we honor our past, we, we, we stand in our future, but we're always reaching, or stand in our present, but we're always reaching for our future. There is always a better day. There's always a better thing. There's always, God's always taken us to, to a different place. And so that's the way we tried to do with Brother Anderson. We, we honor our past. We honor our foundation. We recognize where we are, but we refuse to settle for this. Pastor, you said a couple um, minutes ago, I wrote it down here because I really want to go back and talk to talk about it a little bit. You talked about whenever you um, was in the Bono Church that you were a preacher on Saturday night, the youth leader, then you went on to be assistant pastor to associate pastor. You know, you just kept growing and growing and growing. <clears throat> just because you're growing doesn't always mean it's easy. I want you to speak a little bit about some growing pains and ministry and how that can affect your personal life as well you know in ministry you have you 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 have to be a dreamer we all have uh, visions of where we're going and, and we we often if we're not careful we want to bypass we want to go from point a to point b without hitting all the stops in between we want we we get a grand idea we get the will of god in our mind we get the purpose of god in our mind and then we want it to be right now but the thing about god is sometimes he shows you will and purpose and plan ahead of time and an older minister sat with me one time when i was just a young man and he he told me something that has stuck with me through my life he said it is one thing to know the will of god it is an entirely different thing to know the timing of god and if you get the two out of sync, you'll always be out of everything. Will, nothing will ever work. It'll always be messed up. I said, you've got to get the two together. It's not enough just to know the will of God. It's not enough just to know the purpose of God. It's not enough just to know that he's calling me to do this. But I've got to get in sync with the timing of God. Because without the timing of God, everything else fails. And so as a minister, to me, the hardest part has always been not getting that vision of grandeur into the context of the time uh, recognizing that what i see in my faith what i'm striving for and what i'm reaching for i have not yet obtained and i and i and i, I gotta be comfortable with the fact that i'm in the process that's going to take me there 
And I believe that's the posture of not just ministry, that's the posture of Christianity. When you talk about Hebrews chapter 11, these all died in the faith, having seen the promise from afar, but not ever having claimed it, not ever having laid a hold of it. And that's where we live. We live in that, that glorious in-between, that from, from where he gave me the vision, the calling, and, and, and that purpose and that will, and, and not having yet obtained it, but striving for it. And to me, that's probably the most difficult part of, of Christian living is living in that in-between. And it's the same for ministry. You, you, you're a minister if you're second, you're underneath a pastor and you feel like you, God's calling you to do things and, and you're submitting to somebody else's authority. And that can be a difficult place to be because you feel like uh, you see further down the road, but you've got to recognize the God has a process. God has a process and the process always works, but you've got to trust the process. There's like that verse in Daniel that says the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. I've heard uh, Raymond Woodward preach and make reference of how uh, he makes, he, he sees that to mean that the calling or the dream, it was real. It was from God. But the thing is the time in which it's appointed to come to pass is such a long time. And I know in my personal life and things that I felt like I felt like God was doing in my life, you, you want, because we're in the 21st century now, I'm raised in the 21st century and always having microwaves and everything you could ever want you can have in just a moment. But there's some things you just have to wait on. And, and of course, in that waiting time, uh, you feel like you get into a rut. You feel like, well, I'm believing something that wasn't real to begin with. Yeah. Uh, because I know in my own personal life, there have been many times that I've said, God, I, I, I think I'm believing something that was never true to begin with because I don't see any evidence right now of, of what it is that you were speaking into my life. And I think we all go through that. I think that every individual uh, in, in the Christianity, they all have dreams of something. They all want to pursue to something. And they, and, but there's a time that they find themselves in where they just like, well, where is the, the proof that it really was real? Can someone speak a word of affirmation to me? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and you fall into that trap if you're not careful that you begin to think that your waiting is wasted. And, and your waiting is never wasted. Wherever God calls you to a purpose and he puts you in that place of waiting, David talks about being like the watchman waiting for the morning. And he's talking about the, the, the gal on the walls who's, who's waiting for the sunrise. I don't know about you. I, I get out. I deer hunt. I'm out in the woods before daylight. And I you know, often climb a tree and I'm, I'm sitting there waiting for the sun to rise. And that last few minutes of darkness seems to be eternal. It seems like it will never happen. And that watchman waiting for the morning is that image of that, you know, that uh, it's getting colder by the second and, and hope is fading. And, and, and you've searched the horizon and there's no light there. And, and, and that, that moment, but the thing that the watchman knows is morning's coming. I may not be able to see it yet, but honey, the sun's going to rise. In just a few minutes, that light's going to break the horizon. I may not have any evidence of it in my life. So when you find yourself in that place of waiting, you've got to recognize, first of all, your waiting's not wasted. God has you wait so he can build you. God puts you in that place of waiting so he can show his wonder and his majesty. God puts you in that place of waiting because his process has to take place in your life. But you can go through that waiting with the confidence that that moment is coming. His will will come to pass. His word will not return to him void. Hosea 
Jesus said the promise does not lie. The vision does not lie. What God said he would do, he's going to do. And so the watchman waits with expectation. That's how we spend our waiting. The watchman, he waits with the knowledge the day is going to come. And it will happen. And, and, I would, and the darkest point is the tell that it's changing. Right. Just like the furthest ebb of the ocean whenever it's washing, that, that furthest tide where it seems like it's as overwhelming as it's ever going to get and the assault from the enemy is as strong as it's ever going to be, that strongest push is the tell that that is the high tide. And everything after that, it begins to recede further and further away. They say that it's the darkest before the dawn. In Revelations, it speaks about how the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. I've heard it preached before that the principle in that is the harder the enemy fights, the closer you are to that breakthrough. Right. Because it's like the tide. It's like the darkness. And if you can just hold on to the faith through the darkness and through the tide, the tide is going to turn again. Yep. I believe that. Pastor, we talked a little bit about your ministry, and you just walk, walked with us through the dark times and that you know that the light is coming, but you don't know how long you got to wait. You went through something very devastating um, in your early marriage when your boys was young, and you faced some tragedies while you were still trying to build your ministry. Would you share that with us? Sure. I, I talk about it. When I talk about it in ministry, I often call it the worst two years of my life. But two years is a really an under-exaggeration. It starts a little bit before then. It was My wife and I were married in 1993. And we had our, our plan was that we'd be married about five years and have our first kid. And it was in the summer of, of 1997 that my wife became pregnant. And we were at the time, the church was in a tremendous revival, a uh, great time of growth. We, we, had, uh, we were in, a, in this, this time period where over 100 people received the Holy Ghost and were baptized in Jesus' name in the course of a year. We had 17 get the Holy Ghost one Pentecost Sunday. It was just a, it was a tremendous, tremendous time for us and a great time of revival. Church was on a high, we were on a high, everything was on an up note, and then we found out that we were going to have a baby. And you got to understand, my wife grew up in this church. We're, we're, the, we're the young couple. We're the, we're, we're the center of attention. That baby is going to be the church's baby. I mean, this is, this is everybody's invested in this. And I'll never forget, it was in September. Um, we were in revival. We actually had a guest ministry, in, and we were in a, in a season of revival whenever the miscarriage happened. And uh, we lost. We lost that first baby. And uh, we went to the doctor, and they confirmed that a miscarriage had happened. And we're going to wait and see, you know, let this process carry out and see if you, if you may need a later uh, procedure to make sure everything's cleaned out and all that stuff. And we'll just, we'll wait and see what happens. And so. We left the doctor's office that day devastated. And with the knowledge that revival's going on, everything's on an up note, and we, we really didn't want to be a, a detriment to the revival. We didn't want to be a detriment to what God was doing. And so we called our pastor, Brother Murphy, and we explained to him what had happened and what we were doing and what we wanted to do. And this is what we wanted to do. We said, we're going we're gonna to come to church tonight, and we're just going to act like everything's normal. And we're, we're going to sit on the front row just like we always do. We're going to worship God. We're just, 
we're going to work the altar. When the service is coming to an end, we're going to leave. And you can tell the church what's happened. We, we don't want to be there. We, we, don't want to, we don't want to be responsible for letting the air out of this balloon, you know. We, we really don't want to be, ta- and we, we would like that, you know, that we, the revival would continue. We don't, want, we don't want to cost, we don't want to cause any kind of um, stopping of the momentum of what's happening. So we went to the service, we went through all that, and we did. We, we did exactly what we said we were going to do. We had church, and we, we went home, and he told the church what had transpired. And, and, of course, you know how churches are. They gathered around us. And then the whole church, we didn't realize. We wanted to be isolated because we're hurting. And we didn't want anybody else to hurt with us. But the fact is that this is a family. And when one person in this church hurts, everybody hurts. And so the church was grieving with us. The church was hurting with us. And... And it was it was a it was a difficult period of time. That was from September to October, one month. And my wife didn't didn't quite feel normal over the course of that month. And and so in the middle or late October, we did a pregnancy test, and she was still she it showed pregnant. And and my wife is a nurse, and and she figured that you know probably some of that tissue hasn't made its way out of her her body and we're probably looking at a, a surgical procedure to correct things and we scheduled a doctor's appointment my wife and i were going with my father-in-law and and her uncle and some others to colorado on an elk hunting trip it was october the 31st and we were headed to colorado that evening we were leaving that night to drive out so we went to the doctor that afternoon and uh, we we brought this positive pregnancy test and we're expecting that they're going to schedule a procedure it may it may end our trip we don't know what's going to happen you know and we get in the doctor's office and uh they they did their own pregnancy test and then they checked the hormone levels and then uh they did an ultrasound and they said they come back and they said look you're pregnant and and the baby is about three months old now to put this in perspective we've had a miscarriage one month ago and he says, the baby's about three months old. You, you, and so we, we had this discussion with the doctor. And he's, finally, he says, this is probably what happened. You, you've probably had twins, and you probably lost a twin. And the, the other one has survived, and the, the pregnancy is viable. You're, you're going you know, to have a baby. And so we left that doctor's office on cloud nine. And, and God had done a miracle. And we were, we were excited beyond, beyond any description. But over the course of the next, the next time we went to see the doctor, we, the, the doctors rotated. There were different doctors saw you, you know, each month. And, and the new doctor wanted to, wanted to reevaluate things and say, well, this has to be a new pregnancy. I saw the test results. You had a miscarriage. This has to be a new pregnancy. So they set a due date as if she got pregnant about the time of the miscarriage. So they set the due date for that nine-month span. And the baby was large. Uh, my wife kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they kept telling us, "Well, this is going to be a rather large child." You know, this. She came. She went into labor on her due date, uh, the new due date they had given her, and she gave birth to a ten-pound, ten and three-quarter ounce baby boy. That would be Rockland, my oldest son. And um, it was then that 
you know, the doc, we, we again felt the confirmation of what, what has really transpired here. She's, we were pregnant with twins. What the first doctor told us is what has happened. We've lost one, the, uh, and we've carried this baby now beyond term, which is not abnormal for a first pregnancy. And, and this is why he's so big. And he was, he was, uh, he was full grown baby. <laughs> and so he, we come home from the hospital and I went back to work, and the second day, that he was two days old, we got a phone call from, I got a phone call from my wife. I think she had taken him in for a follow-up appointment. You know how they do. And then the doctor had discovered that he had a hernia, and it was in his inguinal hernia, in his abdomen area. And, you know, first blush, that seems to be a minor thing. You know, baby's got a hernia. Okay, I can deal with that. But the doctor said, you know, we need to we, we need to get this fixed now. You know, you need to you need to you're going home. I'm gonna call and find out. So they call and they they call us again on the, it's the third day and they they called and said, you know, you need to you need to pack up and go to Arkansas Children's Hospital, and uh, they need to examine your baby. And so we went down there. He was five days old. We saw the surgeon, and the surgeon examined him and said, yes, you, you need to have this procedure. We're going to do it tomorrow. And so I am, I am first of all, I'm overjoyed. I've, you know, the child that we lost, we've got, God has replaced, and now all of a sudden we're, I'm about to hand this child to a surgeon. And, and that, that's overwhelming enough, but then we go to the hospital that morning, early that morning, and and we meet with the anesthesiologist, and they tell us, you know, everything they're going to do. You know, I can completely relate with this right now. Yeah, they're going to put you to sleep. And you're, you're going to hand your baby to somebody who is about, they're going to beat his heart for him. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to keep him alive mechanically. And, and it's my six-day-old baby. And that's a difficult place to be. And uh, we, we, we always... My wife and I are each other's strength, and, and we lean upon the Lord, and we have faith in God, and we believe God's going to take care of it. So fearfully but faithfully, we hand that baby over to the anesthesiologist, and they take him down for the procedure. And, and you know how it is. We sit and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait to see how it's going to turn out. And the procedure went well. The doctor came out, so we, we, we fixed everything. You're, I looked at both sides, and when you have a hernia on one side, you're likely to have a hernia on the other side. And and I've looked at both sides. You're good. This is never going to happen again. And so we've, you know, we've we've endured that test. We've handed our baby over to that anesthesiologist. We'll never do this again. Only three months later, he had a hernia on the other side. Same surgeon, same hospital, same anesthesiologist, and we've got to hand that baby over again. And, and I wish I could say it gets easier, but it doesn't get easier. And then when he was 18 months old, he, he had contracted mycoplasmic pneumonia and broke both hernia repairs. And so we had to do the same set of surgeries again. They did, they did both bilateral, they did both of them at the same time. And in between the, the three-month-old surgery and the 18-month-old surgery, he had a surgery to have tubes put in his ears. And then after the 18-month surgery, he had a surgery to have the tubes taken out of his ears. And so we're in this course of his life. First two years of his life, he has five surgeries. And we're getting kind of, I call it the worst two years of my life. We're getting exhausted. We're, we're, we're here over and over and over again. Your faith is 
is being tested. You're laying that baby in the hands of somebody else, and, and, and you're, having to, you're having to count on them and, and trust the Lord that it's going to be okay. And, and, and then my wife got pregnant again, and we started thinking, well, maybe you know, we're going we're to go to the hospital, and we're going to deliver again, and, and maybe this time it's going to be normal. Maybe this time it's going uh, to be okay. We're not going to do this anymore. This is going to end. And so we go to the hospital um, with Harrison, and she gave birth to him on a Wednesday. And immediately, the doctors were certain that there was a problem. Uh, we normally, you know, you hold the minute the baby's delivered, they lay it on the mother's chest, and you, know, you hold the baby and you spend some time bonding. They rushed our baby out of the hospital room, and. Uh, they took him back to the nursery, and they wouldn't let us. Uh, I could look at him through glass, and that was it. And, and we waited, and we waited for our pediatrician, Dr. Jane Sneed, to get there. And, and when she came in, I saw her coming down the hall, and I said, oh, you're a sight for sore eyes. And uh, she looked at me, and I saw fear in her eyes, and it scared me to death. I didn't know what was going on. Nobody's told us anything. But our baby's behind the window and we can't touch him. And my doctor, the one I trust, the one who's been with us through all these different things, is looking at me with, with that, that look that I don't know what I'm going to say to you. And, and eventually they come into the hospital room and they told us that, that he has a... Uh, what they've done at this point is they've done a chest x-ray and his heart is so large they can't see his lungs on x-ray film. And there's something majorly wrong and they're, going, they're trying to get a helicopter from Little Rock to come pick him up. But the problem is they have two helicopters at Arkansas Children's Hospital, and both of them are out. Neither of them is available. And so they're sending an ambulance with a flight crew, nursing crew, that a special ambulance is coming to pick him up. And so we're going we're gonna to rush your child off, and, and, and your child may not make it. Now, I remember, Tony, I remember the devastation of that moment. It seemed like those couple of years all just came crashing in. And I fell on my knees in the hospital room and I said, I can't do this again. I cannot do this again. I can't go through this again. And I, we, we started calling everybody. We know, pray, please pray, please pray. And, and finally the ambulance crew got there and they, they brought him into the room with us in a plastic box and we couldn't touch him. And they told us, we just want you to spend a few minutes with him because you may not see him again. And then they told us that we're gonna take him by ambulance, we're going to Arkansas Children's Hospital, that's where you need to be. He said, don't follow us. If you follow us, we'll call the police and uh, have you arrested for speeding because we're gonna be speeding. Don't, whatever you do, just don't, don't follow us. Well. They left the room to go get ready to go, and my wife, the doctor told my wife, said, you need to stay here. You need to let your family go. My wife said, no, I'm going with them. And, and she checked herself out of the hospital under her own recognizance after having just given birth to baby. We started getting our stuff together. We had brought a car seat to the hospital room, to the delivery room with us, because, you know, you always bring your baby home in a car seat. And we're loading up the car, and we're getting ready to go, and we're trying to make arrangements for somebody to keep Rockland. And uh, somebody asked me about the car seat. Do you want to? What do you want to do with the car seat? And 
Nah, I told him, I said, why don't you put it in the car? Because we're bringing a baby home. I, I don't know how, but we're bringing a baby home. And so we left and we drove and my father-in-law followed the ambulance. We never lost sight of the ambulance and the police never, never came and got us. And I, I prayed, I pleaded, and I begged. I promised God everything I had to promise. I mean, I, I, I did everything I know to do and then, and then got desperate and started bargaining with God, you know. It was the longest drive of my life, although we, we made the drive to Little Rock in record time. Obviously, we were, the ambulance was moving and we were right behind them. And we got to the emergency room there and they put us in a little room and they took him back and they did their x-rays and they did all their stuff and they come back out. And the first, I wish I could say, I wanted to be able to say, you know, God, God healed him in the drive. God didn't heal him in the drive, but God did. There was a dramatic change that happened. The doctor came in and the first thing he said, said, the x-ray film we have here is dramatically different than the film we had in Jonesboro. He said that, you know, in the x-ray in Jonesboro, the heart's so big you can't even see the lungs. And so now it's, it's a lot smaller and it's still big. We still have a problem. We still don't know what the problem is. But, but there is a dramatic change that's taking place in this little one and a half hour drive or however long it's taken to get here. And that's the first light of hope that we got in the middle of this very dark situation. And, and, and they, they couldn't figure out what was going on. It went on for a couple of days. He, they first put him in the... Uh, Premie ward for because the problem he was having was something that may have been common among premature babies but he wasn't premature and then somewhere along the way they came to the conclusion that it was a cardiac problem they moved us to the cardiac ward and they finally sat down with us and they told us your son has been born with a natural blockage of his aorta called a coarctation and we're going to do a surgery it's going to be a, a heart surgery and we're going to repair that and we're going to we're going to take that blockage out of the aorta and when we close that or we, we make that bigger and let the blood flow it should take care of most of the problems um, you're probably going to have to have several surgeries before this is over with you know it's still it's, this is still a, not a done deal it's still a shot in the dark but we're going to do this and and uh, it was again just like his brother the surgery was scheduled for his sixth day of life he wasn't even a week old and at this point, we haven't even held the baby. We, we've never even held him in our arms. And I'll never forget that, that night before the surgery, we went in to see him. Again, we're able to look at him and see him encased in a tent, but we're not able to handle him. And uh, the compassion of a nurse named Harley. I almost named my son Harley after this. Uh, Harley told us, he said, look, he said, this is against all the rules, but you, you may not see your baby again after this. You know, they're gonna do surgery first thing in the morning. So do you wanna hold your baby? So we, we held him for the very first time when he was five days old. And uh, they took him down for surgery the next morning and everything went wonderfully well. They cut him from his sternum to his backbone and went in between two ribs and went in and worked on his heart. And he was in intensive care for several, several days. And then finally they moved us out to a room. Had a problem with, with eating. He, he, he hurt 
to eat. So we had this special bottle. I'll never forget because we paid a hundred dollars a piece for these bottles. They were called Haberman bottles, and and they they would reward the very slightest suck. And so we had to teach him to eat from this thing, and, and it was a lot of coaxing. And finally, got him to where he could eat, gain weight. We came home from the hospital. Two weeks after he was born, we came home from the hospital. We came home on a Tuesday night, and I went back to work on that Wednesday. And that first day back after all that trauma, and you know, you're trying to get back into the, the groove, you're trying to get things settled. And, and I left work that evening coming home, and the engine blew up in my truck. I threw a rod through the block. And it's like, you know, what else is gonna happen? What else can't happen? Called my father-in-law, he came and got me, and then it was Wednesday night, and I told my wife, we talked about it, and said, look, we're gonna, we're gonna go to church, because that's what we do. Well, we go to church, you know, we, God has been good to us. And so at what was probably the lowest point in my, what seemed like the lowest point in my life, I went to church. And on that Wednesday night, Sister Renee had the gall to sing a song that said it's gonna be worth it all. And I don't remember a whole lot else about that day because somewhere in between her beginning that song and the Holy Ghost falling, I begin to understand this one thing. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I'm looking across the last several years of my life and, and tragedy and heartache and, and, and difficulty and struggle and trial, and it's going to be worth it all one of these days. Uh, one of these days I'm going to be with him. One of these days it's we're going to stand on. There's nothing in this world that's going to take that away from me. And all of a sudden, all, it's like it's like you're looking through a, a blurred lens and it all snaps into focus. And I, I begin to realize, you know what? God's got this. God's got this. I can trust him. And from that day on, they told us he would have multiple surgeries. Harrison has never had another surgery. He's still under the care of a cardiologist. They told us just a couple of years ago we may be looking at another major surgery and then and then that situation has resolved itself somewhat at this point. So we, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we're still walking in that same promise. The God that, that has watched over us all these years, he's taking care of us. I can trust the process. Pastor, you used a word that I know is a very passionate word for you, and that word was hope. Can you do us a favor and speak to our listeners right now hope into a hopeless situation you know hope is that thing that it's that i believe it was emily dickinson that called it that fine feathered bird that sings in the night you know in the darkest situation in that place where it seems like everything is against you and everything is falling apart there's that little small steel voice that says i can trust him I can lean on him. I, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, but honey, he doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't owe me uh, some knowledge of what's happening, but I owe him my faith. I owe him my everything. And if I can just hold on, if I can just, if I can just keep my faith intact, he's well able to deliver me. He brought me to it. He's going to bring me through it. 
And so hope is that thing that, that we cling to. And it's that thing that carries us. And it's that thing that will sustain us. And, and it's that thing that we can't ever afford to allow to die in our life. We've got to keep it alive. That knowledge that God's going to deliver. God's going to break through. Listen, it, it may have, this may be the way it's always been, but this is not the way it's always going to be. He's going to come through. In these dark times that people face, uh, there is a question that many people have, and it's, God, why is this happening? And probably one of the biggest questions that there is that's out there is the question of, why bad things happen to good people. We didn't alert you that we were going to ask this question. In fact, it just kind of came to me. Uh, but as someone that has studied, as a man of study, a man that who is, you have your master's degree in theology, um, but you've also experienced hard things. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? And to a person who's going through the storm of their life, that's thinking, God, the, the best way I, I guess I can ask it is, I know Daniel Seagraves has a book entitled, If God Loves Me, Why Am I Hurting? What is the answer uh, from, from your studies and from your experience? Why is it that if God loves us, we still have to, that we still do go through hurts? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question. No, it wasn't something we'd pre-discussed, but... When I came home from that, that ordeal with my son being born and the heart surgery and all that, and I finally came back to work and the truck blew up and it just seemed like everything, the wheels were coming off the bus, if you will. My boss at the time made a, a, a flippant comment to me because he knew I was a preacher. He knew I was a man of faith. And he, the comment was, you know, you must not be living right. You must not, you must be, there must be something wrong because, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen to somebody who's living right. And, and really, that's the question we all, we all wrestle with in this kind of situation. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I, I took that to heart. And I, I took it home and I started talking to the Lord about it. And, and I had a revelation. And probably it's not a revelation that'll be uh, eye opening or, or tremendous to anybody else, but it was to me. Because when I began to ask the Lord, why is it that, that, that bad things happen to good people? Why is it that people who, who give you their heart and their life and their everything, that they end up broken and they end up going through trouble and tragedy and somebody else who, hasn't, who, who doesn't have a care in the world about what matters and what's right and what's good, and they seem to be blessed, and the person who's following you and who's living for you seems to be under this extreme trial, not just me, but... I've seen it in my life, and why is it that way? And the Lord began to very gently deal with me, and I came to this conclusion. Bad things happen to good people because good things happen to bad people. You see, he loved me enough to die for me, and I was never good enough. I could not be saved if God operated under a principle where bad things only happen to 
bad people and good things only happen to good people because I was at heart, I was a bad person. At heart, I wasn't right with him. At heart, I was rebellious. At heart, I was running away from him. At heart, I ignored his call. In my heart, I had committed transgresses against him. I didn't deserve his mercy. But he loved me. And it's because he loves me. It's because he has mercy. It's because of his grace. That's why it rains on the just and the unjust alike. That's why good times happen and bad times happen to the good and the bad alike. That's why time and chance and circumstance occurs to every person because God doesn't operate on a merit-based system of the good get the good and the bad get the bad. God operates on a system where, where the grace and the mercy of God is available to whosoever will. I can have his grace. I can have his mercy. I can know his love because bad things happen to good people. I mean, let's talk about Jesus Christ. Never has there been a man like that man. God manifest in the flesh. He who knew no wrong. He who did no wrong. He who committed no sin. He was a healer. He was a helper. He was a friend that was faithful. He was, he was everything good. And they hung him on a cross. And he died because bad things happen to good people so that good things can happen to bad people. Was that the answer you were expecting, Brian? And that's an answer that kind of blew me away that I've, I've never thought of it in, in those terms at all. I'm taking time right here because there's a lot to digest here. <laughs> A lot of meat to chew. Let's go forward a little bit, Pastor. Um, my mother-in-law told when she found out that um, we were sitting down talking with you. And I'm going to stop right here and say that you hold a special place in my family's heart. Um, my in-laws think nothing but the world of you. And whenever they heard that I was sitting down with you, they said, you have to talk to him about his China experience. Tell us a little bit about your heartbeat in China. Let me say this first of all. Brother and Sister Ramsey are, were treasures in my life. Uh, my dad taught me a lot about ministry, but Brother Ramsey taught me what it was to love people who could not love you in return. And uh, I am forever grateful for the investment that David and Kim Ramsey made in me. And when I was just a young, snotty-nosed kid, they let me go along with them and do outreach, and, and I dressed up in silly clown outfits and went out in neighborhoods, and we were doing street rage before street rage was a thing. And uh, I'm thankful for them, and I'm thankful for the investment they made in my life. Uh, before we get into the China story, I just, I want to stop in go back to a time where I didn't quite know you yet, but it was at David's funeral that we asked you to speak at the funeral and you wore a clown nose while you spoke at his funeral. Tell the story about why you did that. You know, one of the hardest things in, for a minister, you do a lot of funerals and, and you try to, you try to, 
honor every life. And then you come to a life like David's that has meant so much to you. And you, 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 you try to think of how is the best way I can epitomize what he means to me and how, you know, you got to try to put, it seems so cheap to put into words a, a lifetime of emotion. And so we were, it was actually, I had prepared kind of what I thought I might say. I thought through it and it was the day of the funeral whenever I was praying and the Lord uh, impressed on me this, this, this memory of, of the first time that I put on the clown makeup with Dave and them. Here's the thing. I've always been a little, I'm an outgoing person, but I'm a very insecure person. And and I always was scared and timid to share the gospel. And uh, But what that clown makeup did for me was it gave me a face to hide behind. And it it, it released me to, to share the gospel. And, and so that, that whole get up with the clowns and that whole gig that, that probably was, was not it was humorous to somebody else, it was meaningless to somebody else. To me, it was an escape that allowed me to open up and really share the gospel. And so as I began to dwell on that, the, the clown nose thing come to, and so I went all over Jonesboro. I finally found one at Golden Grotto and bought me a clown nose. I stuck it in my pocket and I, I never go to a pulpit without notes and knowing kind of what I'm going to say. But I walked up to the pulpit at David's funeral with a clown nose in my pocket and really not sure where I was going with that, but knowing that I wanted to tell how much he meant to me and how much of an impact he made on my life. And so I did what I did all those years ago. I pulled out the clown nose and I put it on and all of a sudden I'm hiding behind a, just a funny device, but I can, I can open up my heart. I can speak my heart and I can share the gospel. And, and I tried to tell how much he meant to me in that in that moment from behind that clown nose so tell us a little bit about your heartbeat in china will you you know my wife and i both have always had a passion for asian ministry and um we 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 talked about it several times as as young people after we first got married in our young married years about how that you know back in the 80s and 90s the big thing was praying in the that 1040 window and praying in asia where all the the masses of people were we've been hearing their whole life and we had always felt attracted and drawn to that it was um it was in 2000 i believe it was october of the year 2000 the brackens uh, tom and sandy bracken visited us on deputation there in bono and Brother Bracken was right at the end of his deputation, and he did something that he had never done before during deputation. He preached that service in Mandarin Chinese, and his wife interpreted it into English. And it was something he said he hadn't done on any of his other visitation or de- deputation uh, services. And my wife and I were both tremendously impacted, felt like God kind of laid a burden on our heart for Taiwan, for their country of labor, for the Chinese speaking people and we talked to them afterwards and they they extended an invitation to come and and we you know we like you do we said well you know we'll 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 do that you know somewhere down the road we didn't really put any specifics on it then in 2001 uh, the lord allowed us to become acquainted with brother theron smith in sumter south carolina and and brother smith was making annual trips into asia and he told us said if you want to go I'll help you get there. So 
Uh, our first trip to Taiwan, my wife and I went together, and Brother Smith was just a tremendous partner. He he set up the airfare for us. He purchased the tickets. We paid him back. But he he did all the legwork. He he set everything in motion for us. He sent us these lists of things we should do and 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 what to carry on the airplane. I mean, it was it was we had a veteran traveler just just making sure that we had everything worked out. Of course, he flew from Carolina and flew a different flight than us and we flew out of Memphis and we didn't get there at the same time and and uh, we, we, we traveled separately. So whenever I arrived at the airport, I, they were supposed to come and pick me up and bring me to the hotel. And I had, I had known that I was going to Taiwan for some time. Actually, this started in 2000. I'd, I'd hired an Air Force, well, a former Air Force translator to start teaching me the language. And I met with him every week, and, and I was learning Mandarin Chinese. And so I knew a, a little bit of Chinese. I knew enough to be passable in the street. And so we get off the airplane, we go into the waiting area, and nobody's there waiting for us. Our ride's not there. You know, and we waited around 15, 20, 30 minutes, and our ride's still not there. And so uh, we're here, we're on the other side of the world. We're scared to death. We've been flying for 30, including layovers. It's been over 30 hours since we left our home. And we're tired, and we're exhausted, and, and we're on our own, and we're in a foreign country, and, and nobody's there to get us. And so I did what my my character tells me to do. I just went and turned some American dollars into, into new Taiwan dollars and, and went out and held a taxi. And I knew enough of the language to get by and I had the address of the hotel. So we jumped in a taxi and we headed for the hotel. Now, meanwhile, back at the hotel, the missionary has realized that he has forgotten us or forgotten to send somebody out. And so he comes to the airport to get us. And, of course, he arrives at the airport after we've already left. And we're in a taxi going across. Lord only knows where, you know. And, and, and there's a little bit of a panic. And nobody knows where, where we are. And we're en route. And we finally arrive at the hotel. And, and uh, it all all's well. It ends well. Uh, but uh, that's just kind of... The way I've always been, I'm I'm going to go get it. I'm going to go do it, and uh, that ain't you ain't stopping me now. And so we went to Taiwan. We ministered there. Uh, we did. We were trying to count them up. Uh, my wife and I this afternoon. Uh, I think I made five consecutive trips or four consecutive trips into Taiwan each February, and then the the fifth year I went to Okinawa and did a Pentecost Sunday revival in Okinawa. And then we took a year off, and then in 2008, we went in February to Taiwan, and we became pastor here that July, and we haven't been back since. And so we made uh, multiple trips into Asia over the course of those several years. And, and it was, it, it's, it's, it's a culture that's easy to fall in love with. It's a, just a wonderful group of people. So obviously you were burdened with that culture how did you know that you weren't called? You know, I believed when they were fiber in my being that I was going to go. And I, I'm still not sure that we won't end up there someday. Uh, I knew that God was dealing with me about that. And if, if this is where it helps to have a good man of God in your life. Because if it had been up to me, I'd uprooted my family and went. And, and, but I had a pastor who was saying, you know, let's wait let's let's pray about this and let's let let's let god lead us and 
and uh, keeping that 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 steady firm hand on my life and helping me stay in the will and the purpose of God and uh, he probably kept me from rushing off and making a mistake and so I'm thankful for my pastor I'm thankful for his leadership but we 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 felt that call I learned I spent enough time with the language but I came I became reasonably proficient I could uh, I could do all my opening comments in Chinese and then switch to English to preach and I could go out on the streets and buy and sell and all of that. Now, I haven't used that now since 2008. Man, so. I was getting ready to ask him to greet us in Chinese, Brian. <laughs> uh, so explain to me, because maybe this is just my ignorance of, of the geography and the kind of the socio-political environment in Asia. But I remember whenever Donald Trump first became president, he accepted a phone call from, I believe, the president of Taiwan. And at the time, it was a very controversial thing because of the one China policy. I don't understand. What is? Do you, are you familiar with what is the One China policy? Because you say you went to Taiwan. It, Taiwan is not in mainland China, but no. it's under the Chinese. I, I'm confused how that works. The way it works is there was a there was a, a political dispute, a war, and uh, the victor uh, was in between uh, the communist Chinese and those that were democratic, and and the communist party won out, and the um, educational elites and the uh, those that were interested in a democracy, they fled and pulled their little government over to the island of Taiwan. And Taiwan is in the, uh, it's, it's in the strait off of China. It's just separated by a few miles from China. It's a very small island off the coast of China. But it operates much like Hong Kong operates under its own government. It has its own president they elect but they are still considered, China still considers them, what China considers them to be as a breakaway republic, breakaway, kind of like if a, if a state in the United States decided just to start self-governing, and the United States decided, well, we're not gonna go to war over that just yet, we're gonna kind of let this thing work out, but, but there's always hanging over that region the specter that, that war is gonna happen. Eventually, China's gonna step in and they're gonna reclaim China, and our China's gonna step in and reclaim Taiwan, and when they do, uh, the United States has built an alliance now with Taiwan because obviously uh, it's in our interest to, to curtail the, the growth of communism back in the, the Cold War era, but even now, uh, China is one of those forces in the world that has the ability to oppose us. So we back Taiwan, and there's there's a there's a little bit of a constant political and military tension there. Kind of like we back South Korea, but China backs North Korea. Right, absolutely. And so when I first started going to Taiwan, uh, you, you always hear this recording when you fly in about you know you're entering a foreign country, whatever. The recording changed, the policy kind of changed somewhere in the course of those trips. And it began to be you're entering Chinese sovereign space or sovereign airspace of China. That wasn't the way the recording was when we first started going. So they're, they're, that political environment is shifting. There is probably, like I say, going to come the day that China reclaims um, Taiwan and, and that'll come at the cost of blood, I'm sure. Um, but, you know. It is, it is a, the policy of the United States government, the one China policy, is to treat that as one nation, China. But we deal independently. It's kind of like double speak. We deal independently with Taiwan. So what was controversial is it was, whenever he took that phone call, is that it was a, they were seeing it as a way of, he was showing a more of a solidarity with Taiwan, right. should be treated as a separate entity. He was validating 
the president of Taiwan as a as uh, an entity unto himself or a nation, like instead of China, and and that's a political issue. That is, it's a large political issue of our day and age. And and I'm not as involved in that now as I was back then. But uh, it was nice. Brother Bracken was a former Navy SEAL, uh, Vietnam era Navy SEAL, and we had several conversations about that. And one of the questions I always ask is, what are you going to do? You know. When they invade, and this is going to become communist again, what are you going to do? And he said, well, Brother McCall, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to be right here. And, and we're going to keep preaching, and we're going to keep having church, and you know, we're just going to do our thing, and politics can be what it wants to be. So in your office, the, the, uh, should we pretend like we're in his office right now? No, we can't pretend like we're in oh, his that office. Oh, that was the plan. <laughs> the plan was to be in, in pastor's office. But in his office, he has several uh, different things that, that um, call back to, to China. There's obviously still a love there. Uh, but also, you can't miss when you go into his office, his back wall that is full of books. And, and you are, from what I understand, a collector of, of older books. Uh, you let me hold the oldest book that's in your collection. Uh, could you talk to us uh, for a moment about some of your favorite books that are in there, your oldest books, the books that, that have the most profound story to you? Why the uh, old books? I love old books. First of all, I like old preachers. I, I like to read and study what Brother jo Jeff Arnold calls old dead preachers. Um, you know, going back to the Charles Spurgeons and the the, the the Edwards and the different ones that that they their their works are published their works are, are available to us and it seems like they there's preaching material there that has some depth to it that's popular mainstream preaching today doesn't have and I love to rifle through those those old I love I'm attracted to Puritans and old Puritan works and 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 their their thoughts about spirituality their thoughts about uh, sanctification about godly living and and holiness are really applicable to the pentecostal mindset and the pentecostal lifestyle so i love to i love to filter through those things and read those things and and i, I find that those older authors some of those uh, they invested lifetimes into the into the works that they did like i have a a set in my office that is a, a three volume set on the just the sayings of Jesus Christ. And so you've got an author, and they're not they're not thin volumes, you know, they're three inches a piece, you know, three inches thick, and the whole set's nine inches across, you know. And he's poured his life into just the the words of Jesus. And so there's a depth there that you don't find a lot in popular culture, popular writing today. And so I love getting back into that old stuff. I love investing in it. I find a lot of, a lot of value there. I find a lot of unique perspectives there. It's helped shape me and my ministry. And so I, I love books. I love the smell of old books. If they could put that in a bottle, I'd buy it. I love that, <laughs> that musty old book would smell. Would you wear it as a cologne or I, would you spray it around the house? I think I'd wear it as a cologne and spray it around the house. <laughs> and put it on a preacher over here. <laughs> <laughs> I love those old books. So I started buying old books. What started me on the route of buying old books was my mother. Uh, I don't even, it was, in, it was sometime in the 90s. And my mother went to a estate sale, and she bought a couple of very old books, um, over 100 years old, at an estate sale for pennies on the dollar. And one of them was a Bible that she gave to me that year for Christmas. 
and the Bible is about 150 years old. It's it's old leather cover. It's just really tremendous. And and so I had given to me by her these three or four older books, and and I thought it was really neat to hold in your hand something that was over 100 years old. And so I started trying to, I didn't really start immediately looking to collect these things. I just started stumbling upon them here and there. I like junk stores. I like thrift stores. I like to go to old yard sales. And, and you'd be surprised what you can find and, and find it really cheap. And so then I started building a collection. Then I started getting active about it. And I started really looking for things and, and trying to build a library, these older books. And so I have I have an assortment of books that range anywhere from, you know, a couple of hundred years old to, to obviously I've got later, newer works in my library as well. My oldest book is uh, over 200 years old. It is a copy of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I bought it last year. My wife and I went to England for our 25th wedding anniversary and uh, we flew into London, rented a car and drove down to Dover and then all the way up into Scotland. And so we spent a 10 day uh, trip driving through England and into Scotland seeing old castles. I'm not going to ask you what you paid for it, but what's the value of something like that worth? Uh, you know how they do that thing where they say it costs this much and it costs this much, but it's priceless? That is where that is. That falls in the priceless thing. Uh, we, my wife has an affinity for castles, and so we went on our 15th wedding anniversary. I preached in Taiwan, and then we flew from Taiwan to Ireland and we stayed in a 12th century Norman castle in Ireland for a couple of nights. That's what and my then, wife wants to do. <laughs> yeah, that is a trip of a lifetime. Matter of fact, I can, I can recommend the castle we went to in Ireland was by far the nicest place I've ever stayed in my life. And then we, for this trip, she wanted to go into England and see castles again. We stayed in a castle on this trip as well. Uh, we saw five or six different castles as we, we drove through the different places on our way up through the country. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It's it's a it's a tremendous trip. It's a fun trip. Uh, I put 835 miles on a rental car on the wrong <laughs> side of the road, <laughs> well, which is a dangerous thing. As we were in your office before we started our podcast as well, um, there is some diplomas and some accolades on the left-hand side of your office. And Brian, you said you're going to have to be careful tonight because you were talking to two different Tonys. This is where we really differentiate right here <laughs> is because you, like I started this podcast, you have a wealth of knowledge. I want you to kind of get into the importance of education. And I'll tell you a little bit about what our pastor at our local assembly says. He says that apostolics should be some of the most educated people, Bible-wise and street-wise. Talk to us a little bit about your importance of what you think the importance of education is for a Christian. First of all, I think education is extraordinarily important. I'm a, I'm a big believer in applying yourself, getting out there and learning and, and, and mastering a field or a skill and, and being able to excel in that. Now, I have to start, if we're going to talk about education, I have to start with this. I flunked out of college. I went to school on a full scholarship right out of high school. I had a full ride. Everything was taken care of. All I had to do was show up for class and, and make the grades. And I, it was my first time away from home and uh, my first time to have the liberty to decide whether I do what I want to do or what the teacher wants me to do. And, 
and I made some poor choices and I quit going to some classes and I flunked uh, out of my first semester, lost my scholarship, uh, dropped out of school and uh, went back a couple of different times and had the same song and dance. I, I you know, wasn't ready to commit, I was young. We got married and even after we were married, I went back a couple of different times and I just I, I started pursuing one thing and then decided, well, I'm, I'd rather go to Bible college and I dropped out and I'm, I'm gonna go to Bible college. But I, and I even applied to Bible college and was accepted, but never went and then you know i started again i did that same thing again with a different bible college i was just here and there and i was all over the map and and it wasn't until later in life i was after our boys were born and i, I was working a full-time job that an opportunity came along there was a recession uh, they started cutting hours at work and they informed i was office staff i was in, in in the i was a graphic designer for a chain of convenience stores and they came in and they told us they were going to cut everybody eight hours so you were going from 40 hours to 32 hours just pick what day of the week you want to be off you know and we'll coordinate make sure not everybody's off on the same day of the week and you know we'll work something out so i came home and talked to my wife about it and i said you know I, maybe i could parlay this into an opportunity to go back to school and so i went to my boss and i said look what if instead of picking a day i want to be off I picked certain hours of the day where I could attend classes and go back to school. And they said, yeah, we're, we're good with that. So I started back to college and started working towards a degree. I was, again, I, uh, done it the hard way. I was uh, married, had two kids, was working a full-time job, was very active in my church. And, and before I finished that bachelor's degree, which I did just a little piece here and there, before I finished that bachelor's degree, I was a pastor. I started pastoring here the year that I completed that bachelor's degree. And so when I by the time I graduated that bachelor's degree, I'd been doing this quite a while, and I'd kind of gotten into the rhythm of going to school and juggling everything else. And so I started looking at a master's program. I took a year off and then went back to school and, and did a master's in communication studies, uh, com research. And then I took a year off and went and done a master's in theology, which I just graduated from uh, this past May. And I'm looking now at, at PhD programs. And I'd like to get a PhD. And so I, I guess I'm going to be a student for the rest of my life. This is why I tell folks I flunked out of college and I've been trying to make up for it for the rest of my life. I've been trying to I've been trying to prove that I can go to school and I can get a degree because for a long time I felt like I wasn't qualified. I felt like I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a college dropout. I flunked out. I had a lot of potential. I mean, I had enough potential to get a scholarship, full ride to school. You know, I was the guy that's supposed to make it, but I didn't make it. I quit, and 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 the devil held that over my head, and I felt insecure, and I felt unqualified, and I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be anything, and so I thought, mistakenly, I thought that getting an education would resolve that and what i didn't realize until i was in the process is that no amount of education is going to resolve that that the resolution comes from knowing who i am in him mm -hmm. i am who i am because the i am tells me who i am i am who i am because of what he says about me not about what my diplomas say not what's on the wall of my office not what other people think about me but what he thinks about me and i had to come to that somewhere in the pursuit of the degrees i had to come to the understanding that my my reason has to be different i'm not doing this to validate myself in him i'm validated in who i am in him through him so give us a rundown of 
all the degrees that you have and what you're currently working on? I have a, a bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies because I started those various different programs and brought them all together into one program. And then I have a master's of communication studies or com research. And on the strength of that master's, I teach communications at Urson College in St. Louis. I'm the program director for communications out of the College of Communications at Urson. And then I also have a master's of theology from Urson Graduate School, which I graduated with this past May. I am going to pursue a PhD probably in New Testament studies, um, building on my PhD or my master's in theology. I did my my thesis for my theology master's on a communicative approach to scripture. So I took theory that I learned in my communications. These are big words, Brian. <laughs> I took theory I learned in communications and I applied it to biblical interpretation. And so Whenever I do my PhD, I'll probably build some on that. So I'm, bl- I'm blending these two together, communications and theology. So you've talked a lot about what you've done and where you're going. Through all this, what is your dreams and your goals for the future? You know, dreams are, dreams are things that change with time. I heard some Gordon McDonald put it this way. He said that whenever you were a young man, when you're a young man, you go to the plate and you always expect to hit a home run. I mean, every time you step up, you know, you, you believe that you're going to hit the ball out of the park. And so when you get to be a, a middle-aged or older man, you go to the plate with a different set of expectations. And you get to the place where you're just hoping you don't get hit by the pitch. You know, you get to the place where your dreams shift a little bit and you're, you're thinking, well, I just hope that I make it through the game. I don't know. My dreams used to be I wanted to be a conference speaker. I wanted to preach because of the times. I'll tell you what my dream is right now. I want to be the best disciple of Jesus Christ that I can be. When I was a little kid at at my home church in Blythe, Arkansas, I used to lay across an altar and I prayed this prayer, Lord, let my life make a difference. I want to make a difference. And I got away from that in different places and times of my life, but when God called me to preach, that was the resounding cry that kept coming from my heart. I want my life to make a difference. And then, like I say, I, I, you, there are times you drift and you envision other things, and my, my goal is to be a missionary, or my goal is to be this, or my goal is to be an educator, or my goal is to be whatever. And, but, but it all comes back to that same prayer, that same cry. I want my life to make a difference. So here's the thing. I am the coin in the master's hand, and he can spend me however he wants to spend me. I'm not going to limit that. My dream is to be used by him. I want to write books. I want to continue to teach. I teach in the Purpose Institute campus. I teach at the college campus. I want to continue to be involved in helping build ministers and build ministry. But at the end of the day, I want it to be said of me that my life made a difference. However, that looks whatever that looks like wherever that takes me i want god's will to be done in that way in my life thank you pastor for sitting down with us again and and i look forward to when you write those books to be able to get those books i appreciate men like you that have spent so much time in study and and developing an understanding of the scriptures for for people like me that may not have made the time to uh, go to college or take an night class or even a Purpose Institute here in Northeast Arkansas. You're integral in in the Purpose Institute here. But because of ministries like that that you're pursuing to to be imparted into, uh, that is how I've been able to learn 
what it is that I do know. I'm not saying I have any deep, sophisticated understanding of the scriptures, but what I do have, I owe all to people who have spent the time of being able to, to communicate the word to us. And so I, need, I wanna ask you, um, with, with people that are out there that are looking for a, a way to get more ingrained in the scriptures or into Christian living, what would be some books and study materials you would recommend for an individual to pursue in their personal growth uh, with God? You know, I have a whole office filled with books, and if I start talking about books, we'll be here for another six hours or so. But if I was going to pick one book off of my bookshelf that is the most vital book I've ever read, the most important book I've ever read, the most life-changing book I've ever read, it would be The Wisdom and the Power of the Cross by J.T. Pugh. And if you can get this book, you need to get your hands on it. It used to be out of print. It's back in print now. I saw it North American Youth Congress stacks of it at the Pentecostal Publishing House booth. The Wisdom and the Power of the Cross by J.T. Pugh is a book that changed my life. I read it. I've read it several times. I try to read it on a regular basis because this, this is a powerful book. Other books that have had an impact on me, there's a book by Dan Allender called Leading with a Limp that is a tremendous help uh, to, to the dynamics of being Christian leadership in the midst of being a human being. Uh, you know, we all have our, our hangups and we all have our, our little quirks and, and things that are uh, inabilities and deficiencies. And that leading with a limp really came, that book came to me at a, at a very good time in my life to minister to me and it's been a blessing to me. And I recommend it to just about anybody who asks about good books to read. Another one, and this is another older book, um, Gordon MacDonald wrote a book a long time ago called The Life God Blesses. And it was a book that I read as a young man that had a tremendous impact on me and, and uh, I highly recommend it. Now I've got a whole office full of books by Pentecostal authors and I think all of them are great. I love Dr. Norris's books and, and various and sundry other ones. But if I had to just pick a couple that come off the top of my head, those are the ones that I would point out and say, they're older books, you need to get a hold of them they're still around for a reason. Amen. Here at the conclusion of, of this conversation, we'd like to give our guests an opportunity to share uh, something that they have on their heart and leave us with a final thought tonight. The pastor, we'd like for you to take the floor, um, the mics are yours, and uh, minister to an individual out there with just whatever it is that you feel led to speak on. You know, uh, whenever we, we talked about going to Taiwan and all that, and whenever we got over there, um, there were a couple of things to me that were amazing. First of all, there really is another side to this planet. And you know, I remember the night before laying in my bed thinking, you know, we're going to travel to the other side of the world. And I'm not even sure it's there, you know. And there really is another world. There's another place, another. And so we got there, and I, I was kind of overwhelmed by the, the culture, by everything that was going on. But we got in that first church service, and we started praying for folks, and, and people started getting the Holy Ghost. And I discovered something that was probably the most important thing I discovered when I was overseas, and it's this. I couldn't understand a word they were saying. They were speaking Chinese, and they weren't speaking the kind that I know about how to get by. They're, these folks, are they're, they're going 90 miles an hour. And when they got the Holy Ghost, 
it sounded just like you getting the Holy Ghost. It sounded just like me getting the Holy Ghost. Mm. I, there was absolutely no doubt when somebody got the Holy Ghost. And, and I've, known all, I've known this thing was real. I know this thing is real. But you're talking about absolute instant confirmation. Whenever they got the Holy Ghost, they got it just like I did. They got it just like you did. And it was recognizable. And so to somebody out there that you may be listening to this podcast and, and you, may, you may wonder if this thing is real. You, know, you may wonder if, if this thing is genuine. Let me tell you that the Holy Ghost is not just a real thing. It is a gift of God for you, and it will change your life. It'll turn you inside out, upside down. It'll rearrange your priorities. It'll make old things new. All your past will pass away forever, and you'll find in Him everything that He ever called you to be. There's wholeness there. There's completeness there. There's a future there. So if you're if you're perhaps wondering about the Holy Ghost, you're perhaps wondering, you know, if this thing is real, do you really want to commit to this? Maybe you're on the fringes of the church, or maybe you're just on the outside looking in let me invite you to taste of the lord and see he's good taste of the lord and see his mercy is rich Uh, come and experience him and you'll find that he will never let you down brian i don't know about you but this has really been an uplifting episode for me i want to end this podcast this evening by saying if you don't have a home church um, or if you do have a church that you're just not feeling like what we're talking about is something that you can relate to. I encourage you to find you an apostolic church that you can connect with a man of God to. And just like Pastor McCall was speaking a little bit about tonight, you may be in the darkest part of your night, but hold on to the promise that morning is coming because right as you're willing to give up, morning is here. You've been listening to a Crucial Conversation podcast.